It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh, here as always with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are so honored to be joined right now by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. He is, of course, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, here to talk to us about his latest essay for The Atlantic. Dr. Kendi, thank you so much for joining us. Always an honor to be on the show. It's always an honor to talk to you. You... You have a new essay in the Atlantic called There is No Debate Over Critical Race Theory. And I I love that cheeky title because it, it, it the argument that you make is that we we are not actually having an argument in this country. What we have is is a, a right wing media sphere that is arguing against itself and itself only. Can can you unpack that a little bit for people who have been watching this play out? Sure. So is an example uh law professor Kimberly Crenshaw, who helped coin the term critical race theory, once uh, defined it as a way of looking at the law's role, platforming, facilitating, producing, or even insulating racial inequality in our country. But the critics of critical race theory claim that it means that every white person is racist. It it means that uh, children are being taught um, that they're inherently bad people because of their the color of their skin. It means that the nation is inherently evil. And, and, and then they're arguing against the, the definitions that they created for critical race theory. <laughs> uh, and then expecting critical race theorists uh, to respond. And then simultaneously, they're calling people like me the father of critical race theory when critical race theory was born before I was born. No, there's, that's crazy. <laughs> and I know that's exactly what's happening because... Everything is so reductive. Um, one of the things that I think a lot about is straw men. And when yeah. straw men are used in arguments, um, it's a thing that when, you, when you're in law school, you have to be able to identify that. So to your point, conservatives have created a straw man, right? I mean, they've essentially created a fake mythical study <laughs> of critical race theory, quote unquote, that they have defined for themselves to argue against it. Um, is that basically they've created like the ultimate straw man here? Exactly. And and I think part of the reason for that is because it is actually difficult for them to argue against what critical race theorists actually say, what mm-hmm. the 1619 Project actually conveys, what I and other anti-racist intellectuals actually convey in, our, in my work, what activists on the ground who are fighting for equity and justice are actually trying to do. Instead, they try to make us into the, quote, real racists, those of us who are actually trying to push back against racial hierarchy, push back against policies that are leading to inequity and justice. Do you think it's because they know how powerful that is, how powerful anti-racist work could be? Like, are they are they actually taking an assessment of what is going on culturally, realizing its its potential and its strength and then deciding, no, 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 no. it would be a whole lot better to fight against this other thing that we can invent that sounds scary and and then we'll have that conversation so that we can drown out this potentially 
you know, hypothetically country changing um, conversation that's happening over here in the reality based community? Like, is is it do you see it as a conscious decision to react to what is actually happening in activist spaces or or is it just sort of a metastasization of, of, of right wing polemacy? Actually, I suspect it's probably both, because I think on the one hand, one of the ways you cover up racism is by projecting your opponents who are fighting you as the real racist. And there's an old and long history of, you know, of that sort of ploy. And obviously the way you cover up voter suppression uh, is by claiming that you're the avatars of equality and you're fighting against those who are trying to teach our kids uh, to hate other people. Um, But then I think it's also the the case that, that the Republicans in particular, particularly Trump Republicans, recognize that they're starting to lose a large, a larger segment of white America, that more and more white Americans are recognizing systemic racism that's particularly impacting people of color uh, as a problem. More and more are even seeing how systemic racism is causing collateral damage onto white Americans more and more are seeing how it's a threat to to American democracy and 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 so and once those people become be once those people strive to be anti-racist they no longer can be manipulated uh, by uh, Republican talking points it feels so it's- to me like this is the perfect moment to sort of get the, you know shake people out of um, that and and sort of get people to recognize the the existence of systemic racism and then how it shows up. Um, Because I think those two things are separate and critical race theory sort of allows um, that framework for you to pay attention to those things. And you are like, oh, I see how this is showing up, right? Can you speak to, to that? Because I think it's one thing to sort of understand things theoretically, but it's another thing to see how um, structural racism and systemic racism and institutional racism, three different things, um, but related and how they actually show up in our daily lives. And then by extension, have white Americans recognize that and be able to see that too. So I, I think one of the, I'm happy you asked this, Alina, because when we look at the history of critical race theory in particular, you're talking about, you know, a body of scholars, particularly legal scholars, who in the 1970s and early 1980s began to recognize that despite uh, anti, quote, anti-discrimination laws on the books, despite the Voting Rights uh, Act, despite the projected commitment of every institution to diversity, there was persisting racial inequality. And, and they were like, well, that's happening because of the way law, and you know, they wanted to examine the way these so-called race neutral laws were actually maintaining racial inequity and injustice. And so, and we saw that recently with the Supreme Court's decision uh, to essentially uphold Arizona's voter restriction policies. They basically stated that even though the law, the laws, uh, are leading to racial disparities, there could be other reasons for that disparity, <laughs> not the law. And so therefore, we're not going to strike down this law. Yeah. So how 
How do you suggest that people who are trying to engage in anti-racist work engage with these disingenuous people who would like to argue against themselves more than they would like to actually talk about what we're talking about? Like, is it better for us to try to shout them down to explain where they're wrong? Or is it better for us to ignore them and keep doing the things that we're doing and having the conversations that matter? So I think there's two sides. There's two different strategies. I think for for like a Ted Cruz who said critical race theory says every white person is racist. Uh, I, I don't know if we can necessarily engage him on that point because I suspect he knows himself. He was trained in law school right. uh, that that's actually not what critical race theory says. So, so telling him what he already knows is probably not going to be effective. But I think his his constituents, the people who are consuming, um, you know that that I that definition. I think we can have a, a, a different approach. And, and I, I think with those folks, we have to start with definitions. Like we, we have to, you know, make sure we're on the same page about what critical race theory is, about what racism is, about what anti-racism is, even about what's being taught about race uh, and, and even slavery in schools, because we don't have those basic common uh, facts or definitions that, 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 are, that are essential to having a constructive dialogue. It feels like so at at one point in your in your article, you go in deeply about um, critical race theory and the AAPI uh, experience, because I have started hearing some of this coming from the right, that critical race theory is actually somehow anti-Asian. And I I read that and my brain just sort of fritzed and I didn't <laughs> I, I didn't follow down that rabbit hole. And it wasn't until I read your piece in The Atlantic that I actually got an understanding of what they were trying to say. Can can you talk a little bit about how critical race theory relates to people of color in America who are not black? Well people of color in this country who who are not black are also facing uh, racist violence, and obviously we've we've all witnessed the, the the racist violence that that members of the AAPI community have faced, particularly over the last year. But that's been, you know, really since um, their arrival as as immigrants in the 1860s and 70s, if not before. Um, and 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 also people, uh, other peoples of color are are on the lower end of. Of, of forms of disparity. And so, for instance, uh, the, the community that had the, that, that, that saw the highest surge in unemployment, I talked about this in the piece, uh, in New York were, were Asian Americans. Um, you know, I also, I also know that in New York, if we want to sort of stay on the topic, uh, Asian immigrants have the highest levels of poverty than any other racial group. And, and of course, we know what's, what, what Latinx Americans are facing, what, what Native Americans are facing, what even uh, Americans from who are of Arabic descent, Arabic descent, um, you know, are facing. It's, it's not just Black people, uh, but what? But I think the reason why uh, these critics of, of uh, or so-called critics of critical race theory three are, are, are specifically uh, talking about the AAPI community is because. They're, they're, they're claiming that because these, these folks are, are doing better on standardized test scores, have higher incomes, have, have, have higher sort of life expectancy, then it must mean 
that racism doesn't exist. And those other people who have lower, it must be because of their behavioral deficiencies. Mm-hmm. I think so, about this a lot. <laughs> I, like, I think about this point all the time. It's it, I mean, this is this is the model minority point. This is what they right. they try to do regularly to divide us. Um, I, I guess they'd rather us they'd rather us argue. They want us to argue with each other the same way that they're arguing with themselves. Like the, their idea is that we all just get confused about what the issue actually is. And so we can't make any progress on it. Is that the end game? I, I certainly think that's that's part of the game. And, and and I also think specifically with the AAPI community, we we I think you you mentioned sort of the term model model minority. I think what's also happening now is they're they're making uh, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders into a model monolith. Mm, and and the mm-hmm. and the reason why that's critical is because there's more uh inequality with in particularly economic inequality within Asian American communities than any other community. And so when you're able to essentially uh, take, let's say, uh, wealthy Asian Americans and make them into the model of all uh, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, uh, and then claim that you're racism You're going to erase a lot exist, of stories. Precisely. Yeah. Right. And I think that's what's oftentimes happened with black folks you know they would take a specific black person who's excelling and say well if if she's excelling if he's excelling everyone else should be able to too the model minority myth is i my best friend um is south asian so i have this conversation a lot (laughs) um and you know in part i think it was i think i was maybe like in my late teens when i realized um you know you have that epiphany you're like oh the reason why this this false narrative is helpful to sort of white supremacy is to your p- earlier point, you know, it's it's anti-black racism. It's basically it is. sort of yeah. the the cases that you can put up and say, well, black people, they're, the reason why they are still, um, you know, have all of these economic indicators at the bottom of the of the stack is because they are not working hard enough. Um, you know, even when we talk about I remember back during one of the immigration debates during the Bush administration, um, you know, this idea that they're taking jobs away from hardworking Americans who want them, um, you know, that narrative, if you, you know, really sort of dig into it was also anti-black because it was, it was basically quote unquote, stereotypical blue collar white, um, you know, men who are losing jobs to quote quote unquote, undocumented immigrants um, and those immigrants are doing the jobs um, that black people are too lazy to do. That's the full message. I mean, they never go that far and explain all that out. But I feel like a lot of that has just been embedded. Anti-black racism is just embedded in everything. Um, can you talk about how that shows up? I mean, we talk a lot about how white supremacy shows up. And we've talked to you about how white supremacy shows up. But anti-black racism is something we don't talk ab- about enough. We don't. And indeed, when the construct of the model minority emerged in the mid-1960s, it was contrasted with the problem minority. So the term problem minority hasn't lasted in the discourse in the way model minority has, but it, but, but it certainly was, was, was the contrast. And who was the problem minority? Black people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it was imagined by those early theorists of, of the model minority that 
that specifically in the first sort of model minority in the Asian American community was Japanese Americans. And it was that these, these Americans were, were working hard and were, were, were and, and that's why they were, let's had, let's say had higher uh, economic uh, 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 sort of uh, uh, indicators than, 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 than black people who aren't working hard or who are spending their time complaining and, 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 and uh, you know, about racism when, when the real problem is, is, is what they're not doing, is their pathological cultures, their broken families, their broken homes, their broken communities. Uh, and if they would only fix those as uh, uh, Asian Americans have, um, then they would be okay. But then obviously when they would not speak about, and this is what becomes critical, when the conversation became between uh, Asian Americans and Black Americans, it was this construct of Black people being broken. But then when the the, sh the discourse shifted to Asian Americans, white Americans, then there were conceptions of, of Asian Americans being broken in some way or hypersexual in some way. Um, and so, and I think we have to understand uh, the, the, the way in which that operates. Dr. Kendi, your writing on this subject is obviously um, just incredibly important to this time, especially as we're watching the disinformation campaign happen on the other side. So I appreciate you being willing to continue to educate, um, despite how exhausting that must be, to continue to have to go back and explain what you have already very well explained. <laughs> but I appreciate you being willing to do it. And um, I think our country is, is better for it. Dr. Kendi, thank you so much for, for joining us. Us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Come back anytime. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. 